Queer Relationships, an IM clinic podcast devoted to helping you, the LGBTQ plus community, create the love lives and relationships you crave. What does being queer like feel to you? It feels like just every time I meet someone who's also part of the community and I don't have, I just feel completely accepted. I don't feel judged. I just feel loved. Mm -hmm. Like that's how I would and it just, it feels nice. Hello, my name is Isaac Archuleta. Have you ever found yourself asking hard questions about who you are and where you're going in life? Is it hard to know exactly what gender or sexual identity might be the right fit for you? In today's episode, we explore the internal terrain of a young queer Gen Zer who tries to find the right language to express herself the right way. Let's take a listen. Growing up and like realizing your sexuality as like in the generation I'm in, how it's been difficult with people not taking you seriously and with people just being like, nope, you just want to be like everyone else. So that kind of makes it a lot harder to accept yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Would you say that you're a Gen Zer? Um, yeah, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, awesome. I was born in 2002, so I'm like right there, but it's with having sisters that were millennials it's kind of like growing up I felt more like I wasn't Gen Z but mm-hmm. yeah absolutely but you can still feel it flowing through your blood yeah now I'm like I'm full Gen Z 100% <laughs> yes and they um I am so excited for their generation like completely I think y'all are so much more bold and confident um it just seems like you guys have a really beautiful confidence to stand up for the truth. I do hear you kind of in this generational way that almost being queer could almost be seen as like a trend or a fad or like the cool Crocs or Converse that you have to go out and buy. Now everybody has them. Yeah. Kind of start me at the beginning. How have you experienced that? Um, so... I kind of realized I was a part of the community when I was in middle school, you know, around the same time, a lot of people begin to be like, oh yeah, I like the same gender <laughs> or, oh yeah, I like more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I first came out to the first person I told, they kind of were, it was a friend. So it was someone that I'd been really close to and like had really grown up with. And I came out to her and she was like, oh, are you sure? And I was like, no, <laughs> no, I'm not. And it kind of had just been teeter-tottering against like, oh, what am I? Oh, who do I like? For honestly, uh, probably about four years mm. before I kind of accepted myself. And then I was like, no, I'm not saying this just to say it. I'm not saying this because I feel like people are going to be like, you just see other people doing that. So you want to do that, especially coming from a family where more than one person is a part of the community. I kind of not like I felt like if I had come out earlier um my parents would have been like no you just want to be just like her (laughs) Mm -hmm. or you don't you don't actually believe that Uh, fully when I did come out that did not happen but (laughs) I had to it's because I prepared for that and I had practiced how I would say it so that way it was like making sure like I know Mm -hmm. That preparation is really, really important. 
Yeah. I recommend that all the time. Prepare your language, prepare your language everywhere you go. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And sometimes even still now when I have to tell people, it kind of, they look at me and they're like, it's just like that look. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Do you have an idea or maybe even some direct criticism from people that kind of highlights where the doubt is coming from? Like um, why can guess you? I think it might just be my own anxieties mostly. And just like nobody's, and it's like the thing is, is nobody said it personally to me except that one comment where my friend was like, are you sure? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think just like, seeing it on Instagram growing up where it'd be like oh yes I came out and then everyone was like you're making it up so I think like having information of people to be like oh yes that's what it could be for you kind of made me assume every way would be like that but Mm -hmm. thankfully it's not (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah I'm thinking through this in my head and, and my kind of observation in the community is that this bias maybe happens for people born in female bodies more than it does for people born in male bodies. You know, Mm. a male-bodied person says, I'm queer. They don't get a lot of, are you sure? Yeah. Which I think is a really strong bias. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I noticed that too now that you're saying that, like that does play into a lot of like individual struggles I've seen just people in female bodies also have. Mm -hmm. and I've heard about it's like okay (laughs) Mm -hmm. but yeah I think a lot of times the straight community they have no idea what makes them straight you ask a straight person what makes you straight and they're gonna be like I have no idea and I think for those of us in the queer community we have a little bit more insight on what queerness feels like saying the same thing in another way is what sexual orientation, gender identity, what what they feel like, what the experience is, because we're constantly comparing ours to heterosexuality or cisgender, um, being cisgender. In your experience, if you don't mind, (laughs) what does being queer like feel to you? Um, you know you're queer. It feels like Every time I meet someone who's also part of the community and I don't have, I just feel completely accepted. I don't feel judged. I just feel loved. Mm -hmm. Like that's how I would. And it just, it feels nice. Like, yes, there are like the specific things that people assume with being queer. Like I'm attracted to like women as well. Mm -hmm. Mostly women. I kind of identify as a lesbian, but at the same time that self-doubt comes in where it's like, if things change, I don't want to put an exact label on it, you know? sure but so it's kind of just like whenever I meet somebody else who has had similar experiences to me Mm -hmm. I kind of just feel safe for sure is this kind of the the kind of identifying as lesbian is that an example of one of the insecurities you mentioned a little bit ago I think so yeah okay yeah I can imagine well it sounds like there's almost a, a fear in you that if other people think you're not fully queer then you should feel that way too. That maybe you're not fully queer. Yeah. Is that fair? <laughs> that sounds fair, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We do that everywhere. <laughs> you know, they think I'm not smart, so maybe I'm not, or they think I'm not attractive, so maybe I'm not. And we use each other as a mirror 
to say, how do you see me? How you reflect that back to me is how I should see myself. And that mirror is very, very common. So what you're doing isn't out of the norm, but it does seem like maybe we um, could throw a rock at that particular mirror. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Let's break it. Yeah, I'm okay with that bad luck. (laughs) For real, for real. Um, Let's go back one more time. You know you're attracted to women. You feel, I kind of want to use the word at home in the queer community. How else is your body telling you, yo, I'm queer? How do you know that for certain? Attractions for women, absolutely. What else? Um... What are some like examples like that you yeah. would use? Sorry. No, this is. No. I'm, I have a hard time explaining things. Yeah, well, that's why we're here. <laughs> Deepen the self-awareness. Yeah. I'll maybe use myself as an example and maybe kind of give you some momentum. I would definitely say attractions for the same gender. Absolutely. If we were going to use attractions, physical attraction as like a major umbrella, I think that 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 container, it holds a lot of different emotional attractions underneath it. We know that the, when the body responds emotionally to someone in a positive way, it turns romantic and that emotional response turns into eroticism or sexuality. And so when we look at attractions, we have the visual stimulation of, of our body responding with arousal, but we also have this huge emotional reaction if a man, a very attractive man hugs me, I'm not necessarily gonna be sexually aroused, but I will experience a type of protection, a type of being held, a type of emotional excitement that I don't get if an attractive woman hugs me. Thank you for sharing that with me. I, yeah. that was helpful. Mm-hmm. I have always found myself more drawn to females. I've always found myself more like wanting to be friends with them not just in the way that it's like boys are gross and scary like how growing up my friends would be I they would all and like now I realize oh because I had a crush on them (laughs) and it kind of when the friend that I had talked about was kind of someone that she was the one who kind of made me realize and so that's why I told her was because it was like oh that's embarrassing (laughs) like it was you and so I told her and then yeah, yeah okay we've talked about that but also I have been in a relationship with, with both male and a female, and mm-hmm. I just felt more like, I don't want to say the word worthy because it's, that's not the right word, but it is sort of in that relationship. Like I've felt more myself and more authentic and just any like hug we'd have, it was more, it meant a lot more to me than it had meant to like from anyone else. Right. And so that was like, yeah. A big telltale sign. Yeah. Yeah. I was once in a therapy session um, with my therapist. Her name is Kathy. And she, we were, it was years ago, we were talking about this one guy I was dating. And she stopped me in all my confusion. And she said, Isaac, how do you feel when you're with him? And that was something I'd never thought. I kind of looked at her with like the confused dog tilted head look, you know, like, oh, what do you mean? And she kind of guided me into this like unconscious world I had in my body where I got to assess how I felt being around this really wonderful guy I was dating. And I discovered that 
I didn't really feel authentic uh, to your point. I didn't feel at home in my own body. I kind of felt like I was in survival mode. I felt like I was a guest in someone else's world. And I think this kind of look inward at how do I feel when I'm dating someone of the same gender? To have your answer, I feel more authentic. Again, is another huge sign that says there's something about this connection that makes me come alive. And I think that that kind of authenticity is, is very, very clear sign. How does it feel to hear me say that? It feels good hearing someone yeah. else say that, yeah. Mm -hmm. cool. Yeah, I think sexuality, I don't think we give it enough we don't talk enough about the emotional attraction or the emotional experience that is a very serious and profound part of sexual arousal. And so I, I could imagine for anybody, but especially a Gen Zer who says, you know, I haven't found someone of the same gender that I'm physically aroused by. So does that mean I'm queer? Because I think I am. But until we have that emotional connection, that emotional arousal, we might still really remain a little um, confused or doubting ourselves. And I think that's, that is completely normal and natural. Yeah, that's how I, how you explain that. That's how I've always felt when I thought about like heterosexual relationships. I've always like, because I was the first person I dated was a guy and I always felt a little off or like I was trying to be someone I wasn't and I kind of I had known then that I had also been interested in women so it kind of was always like well that's obviously a sign but yeah. it's like I figured eventually I would feel some sense of comfort but that sense never ever came yeah. so again another telltale sign <laughs> yes. yep <laughs> it's like all of these things and it's a, I'm aware that like most of it's in my head it's just hard to get that voice out totally absolutely I want to get to that voice but I want to maybe think about one thing real quick a lot of us in the community and it's fair um, we talk about like being gay lesbian bi pan as though they are different than being demi. We, we set being demisexual equal to all of those things as though it deserves its own container. For some people that is absolutely true. My experience though, as a pan person, my, let me describe it this way. My panness, my arousal will turn on only when I have that emotional connection or generally when I have that emotional connection. So it's almost like if being pansexual was the yolk and the egg white, Demi houses all of that as the eggshell. Mm -hmm. And so for some of us, we might not experience true physical or, or any kind of arousal until we experience the emotional one, even if we're lesbian or bi or pan. And so I kind of want to just maybe give you more food for thought and we can process this if you want, but maybe just to kind of use some of your language, maybe it might be fair to call you a lesbian with a demisexuality. 
I've not really looked up the demisexuality thing, so I wasn't not thing, but term, so I was not familiar with it as much. Mm-hmm. But that might, yeah, that might be something to think about. Yeah, demisexuality is kind of the um, the experience of being attracted to someone because you're creating an emotional connection. Mm-hmm. With them. I mean, that's kind of a generalized way of describing it. And so again, for me and my pan experience, I might, I am definitely more attracted to men or um, male presenting people. And I have had experience, one of my first boyfriends off the, off the gate, just getting to know him, I wasn't really physically attracted to him until I saw how wonderful his personality was. And then because of our emotional connection, he became physically attractive to me. And it was so incredible to watch my body kind of go through that transition. It was almost like it was like revealing this like physical beauty because I was seeing the inner beauty. It was a real, and my body still does that. Hmm. That sounds very familiar. (laughs) (laughs) Uh So, (laughs) Hmm. hmm. Yeah, I'm bringing this up because I'm wondering if, well, one, if this helps understand a little bit more of your own experience and kind of bringing up more self-awareness, but if it helps kind of give you this, I call it the internal pillar of confidence, this confidence that says like, yes, hell yeah, I've collected all of this data and there's this, this pillar within me now that, that really supports and can tolerate with conviction that I know who I am. Yeah. 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 (laughs) (laughs) So now let's hit the play button on that old narrative, the narrative that says, maybe I'm not queer, maybe I'm not lesbian. Tell me what that voice sounds like. When do you hear it? How does it feel when you hear it? Um, I like to hear it a few times a week. And it'll normally be when I'm like thinking about like just life and like how it's going to go. And then I'll be like, hmm, happy little, happy little ideal lesbian dream. And Mm -hmm. then that voice will be like staring at me in my head. For sure. Like staring in crickets. Does that make sense? Totally. Okay. Um, Like just Yeah. yeah, It's like (laughs) that self-doubt and it feels like it kind of hurts for a little bit and then I'm like I'll think about it and then I'll think to myself not true to mm-hmm. the cricket noises I'll be like okay mm-hmm. and then it'll go away but it always comes back <laughs> mm-hmm. for sure this is again something that's very common um, a lot of us in the queer community I think being closeted comes with a lot of rumination. When I'm living in an isolated little cell, I'm gonna ruminate. It's kind of one of my only options. No one knows who I am. What if they find out? What if I'm wrong? What if it doesn't feel right? What if I do this and it's a shit show? Like we will ruminate and ruminate and ruminate. And then on the flip side of when I come out, it will feel this way that I can do this. He'll love me that way. He'll hold me that way. He'll make me laugh that way. And we kind of ruminate, but on the positive side, we daydream and make all these beautiful fantasies. And I think there's so many social ramifications or consequences or kickbacks that 
making a determination, like I am lesbian, you know, I signed on the dotted line and the judge smacked the gavelin down and now I am a forever lesbian. That's kind of a daunting declaration and a daunting task to, to figure out, can I really sign on that dotted line? In that way, do you feel like the term has to be lesbian forever and ever? I, I've always felt like sexuality is 100% a spectrum. And I'm always like, if I personally change my opinion, that's okay with me. Like, and I'm aware that that might happen. And I've, when I tell, when I like have friends and they ask me about, I'll be like, yes, I do only like, like I find myself only attracted to women right now, but that doesn't mean in the future that'll change. Mm -hmm. And so I always say that. And I think that kind of, I kind of feel like, yes, that's, it's good that I say that to not like doubt myself in the future if it happens but I feel like that also is where some of that self-doubt comes in because it's like I'm putting that out there like I'm immediately already being like no my sexuality is something that I don't like I feel like it's me saying I don't take this seriously Mm. does that make sense absolutely for sure there's this wonderful book it's called sexual fluidity by Dr. Lisa Diamond and she's a she's a very smart lady holds a doctorate in psychology or sociology, I can't remember which one, but she writes about this idea that sexual sexuality is fluid, and she's writing about it from a female sexuality perspective. It's awesome. You might enjoy reading it. I, I like what she introduced us to, the idea of sexual fluidity, and I hope that it gives a lot of us the ability to actually embrace the fluidity when I was first coming out, I sat down with a mentor and I was like, oh my gosh, Dr. Haas, I don't know if I can come out as gay because it's going to, it's like a stamp on my police record and everybody from here on out will be able to look at that police record and know what I've said. And then I did some work with another therapist. His name was Clinton. And I realized that I was bisexual. And that was like in 2010. And then about two years ago, Um, I realized that bisexuality was a good fit, but not precise until I kind of really began thinking about the word pan and what it might mean to articulate my experience. And then I realized pan with a little demi flavoring in there, because that's part of how my sexuality works is a really good fit for me. And that's the best that our language can do for me. Yeah, I'm getting to the point where it's like, what other people like I'm thankfully getting to the point where the mirror starting to shatter a little bit mm-hmm. uh, I'll catch myself being like well it doesn't matter what they think because they don't know me they're not in my brain they don't know what I'm attracted to so I it feels like there is some progress mm-hmm. especially like now that I can think and to be like stop saying that mm-hmm. <laughs> stop saying that doesn't mean that it'll change for sure which as I feel like has the when I I don't recall when I started doing that but I definitely feel like I have been happier when I started to backtrack on that thought and be like no Mm -hmm. yeah it's almost like um thought challenging like challenging your own thoughts I mean it's a classic TBT move which is great (laughs) dialectical behavioral therapy which is awesome I have a couple of things in mind. 
I think if you were to sit down with a kindergartner and say, math has numbers and they would be like, yes, totally. And then if you were to say math has letters and they would look at you again, like what the heck's wrong with you? Math is, I mean, clearly math is about numbers. And it's not till we grow and develop when we can confidently say, oh, math does incorporate letters and it's kind of this whole new revelation. And I think in the same way, to, to be the adult and talking to a kindergartner and saying, no, sweetie, you're going to learn that math will have letters someday. And I think that kind of confidence oftentimes is required by us in the queer community to say like, you might not get this now. But eventually you will, yeah. Eventually you will. And for right now, I am certain that this is what my sexuality is like. And so I can be on the journey of you growing a little bit. Yeah. If we're willing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When you put it that way, it makes so much more sense in my brain. (laughs) (laughs) Good. (laughs) When you do hear that little voice, does it bring up a sense of panic, a sense of shame? I think so. Okay. How intense does that panic get? It's uh, like a two and a half. So it's not terrible panic, but it's there. (laughs) For sure. Do you want to, I have a quick little exercise we can do. Yeah, totally. Mind? Okay. Yeah, that sounds cool. Um, Close your eyes and just take a deep breath. And I want you to think about that voice that comes up. And when you hear that voice, where do you feel that panic and shame in your body? Is it a chest thing? Yeah, it's in my chest. Okay. How big is it? Does it go up into your shoulders? Mm, It stays in my heart, but it like goes up a little bit. Okay, kind of in your throat? Yeah. Okay. Does it go below your rib cage? Not really. Okay. And this is still about a two and a half? Two or three? Um, no, it's like a four. <laughs> yeah, that's about right. <laughs> if this, if this experience right in your chest, this this four kind of panic shame thing, if that had a voice, what is it saying right here in this moment? It's just saying like, I don't know, you're not it. You're not. Stop. <laughs> mm-hmm. Stop trying to be not. For sure. Yeah. Yep, like drop the facade, stop translating. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for translating what I said. <laughs> <laughs> My job. <laughs> yes, cool. Okay. So this, this experience in your throat and in your chest, this number four, we would say that it's made up of three things. That narrative that you just told us about, the emotion that comes with that, powerlessness, fear, um, But then there's this really beautiful layer that we're gonna kind of dig to, or maybe it's not necessarily beautiful, but it's helpful, is the physical experience. So if we were gonna push away the emotions and the voice and really just get to know what this experience is like in your body, like little synapses creating an experience, how would you describe this experience? Is it pressure, a tingling? It's more of a pressure, yeah. And when, cool, I want you just to take a moment and look at it just like it's pressure, almost like you're a scientist looking into a Petri dish, looking at its characteristics. 
when you look at it from that perspective, does it stay at a four? Mm, yeah, it doesn't really change that much. Okay. Yeah, that's totally fine. Yep. Okay. It's kind of normal. So what I want you to do now is I want you to take in some deep breaths, but the visualization that I want you to do is imagine that all of that fresh oxygen is gonna kind of swirl around that number four, almost like a storm cloud. So this fresh oxygen is gonna go right around the hurricane that's in your chest. And I don't want you to expect anything or put pressure. I just want you to observe all of that fresh oxygen going right around the parameter. Take all the time you need here. It felt good. <laughs> it felt good being able to like awesome. give it new air. Good. Do you feel like it's a three now? Is it a two? Yeah, it's gone down a little bit till a three. Okay. So what we're doing here is something called titration. And it comes from the research of a guy named Peter Levine. Peter and his research, Dr. Levine and his research showed us that some of these fears, they can literally live in our body. They don't really live in our mind as memory, but they live in our body as peptides, right in the fascia. So when we hear that voice, it's like a software. When we hear that voice, the body says, oh, I have a software for this. And it pulls up the panic and the shame. Another doctor, his name is Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, he said, because some of this memory lives in the body detached from rational thinking, the body's only choice is to keep re-experiencing the software. So that means that this voice can be on repeat and can just play over and over and over in your body. Hmm. So this tells me if I, we're kind of moving in the right direction that this voice is actually kind of a little or a lot of trauma this sounds like a classic kind of trauma trigger to me. yeah mm -hmm. good thing i have therapy right after this. <laughs> <laughs> hallelujah hallelujah <laughs> does it feel like a little would you call yeah, it yeah i think so as i grew up in a church so there's definitely some trauma there yeah for sure yeah. You know, I think we, we in our culture, it's, we're slowly starting to change, which is great. But we think of trauma as like those huge major, you know, events that left us totally devastated. And that is trauma. And trauma is also those little micro moments of saying, maybe I'm wrong. And then having a church or a friend say, maybe you're wrong. And the, the fear of being wrong and making the wrong decision and saying, some, saying something that's really not true, that can live in us like a little trauma. So it's like trauma caused by ourselves, kind of? Totally. Like, oh, yep. mm -hmm. oh, I didn't realize you could do that. <laughs> <laughs> we totally can. Um, I, I've mentioned this a couple of times on the podcast, but it's really important for our conversation. If we put two monozygotic twins in let's say a car accident and monozygotic twins are identical twins it's one um one embryo that's split into two so they have the same dna same brain same everything right 
they're born, they're older, let's say they're 25 and they live in the same car accident. The identical twin who tells themselves they were powerful and they had um, options in the car accident, they could reach for safety, they could create safety, they had resources, you know, they could call 911 really quickly. They would not internalize that accident as trauma. But if the other identical twin felt powerless, their perception said, I'm stuck, I have no options, safety is too far away, that twin will process that experience as trauma. And so if we ever tell ourselves, the keyword here is powerless. If I feel powerless in this experience, then I will experience this as trauma. It will, it will turn into that in my body. And that is really common. That's not, I, I want to be careful here not to shame you or to say like, gosh, just change your perception. Oh, no, you're good. You're not doing that. You're good. <laughs> okay. But I do want to identify where did you or where do you feel? powerless in a situation. And we can talk about that some more if you want, but that's one of the reasons why I want to identify all of the areas where you can feel powerful to know your experience. Um, okay. I feel like I feel powerless and just that's mostly in my head. I feel like not having a lot growing up in Western Kansas, not being able to like see people be so sure about themselves, see people be themselves really was hard because I never got to experience like that. Absolutely. And I had to like hide who I was when people were being themselves. And so that Mm -hmm. very much, yeah. (laughs) I think about this often in, in jest and in seriousness, but what, would the, what was it like when we had no mirrors, literally? Like, if I had no idea what I'd look like. Yeah. Honestly, and then you take me to a pond, and I get to, like, lean over and look at my reflection for the first time. I might be very hesitant to say that's me. Yeah. And I feel like coming out of Western Kansas could almost be, like, having no mirrors and then leaning over a pond and saying, yeah, that's you. Yeah. And it might, you might have to lean over that body of water for a long time until you're convinced. You might have to wink one eye and then the other, <laughs> one hand and then another and be like, oh shit, that really is me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so I think in a great way, what would it be like to go out there and create mirrors, to go on dates, to observe your body, to see how it responds? Does that seem like a process you can I feel like if I did that, it would be, it would be very helpful, (laughs) like making those mirrors. Yeah, for sure. When you think about that, does it feel powerful? Yeah, for sure. Cool. Does that, that number three in your chest change? Does anything happen to it? It it gets easier to breathe. It's like, I feel like I would now describe that feeling as like, when you brought in that air thing, (laughs) it it felt like I was replacing the air and now the air I'm breathing out is new. (laughs) Good. Good. Let's maybe take one more, one more spin, stab at it. Where might you also feel powerless? What's one other area that we might want to identify? Um, In other words, where might some self-doubt be hanging out? Yeah. 
Let me maybe think of some examples or some ideas. Yeah, okay. that would work. Um, I think sometimes vulnerability is really important. We might say, I haven't actually practiced deep vulnerability, so I don't know if romance will uh, cultivate or be nurtured on that deep level. So that can leave us feeling powerless. Um, sometimes saying like I've done something sexually but not other things and what if it doesn't happen that can leave us feeling powerless um, um I feel like vulnerability that one okay that it's really hard for me to open up to people and for me to allow myself to feel every experience totally yeah. so so this might be another way of taking power back here is um a very important step-by-step -step process that I like to talk about all the time. If you think about vulnerability as, um, we could think about it in terms of like change, pennies, nickels, and dimes, and quarters. I like to think of it as the stackable Russian dolls, the nesting dolls. But if I say, I'm not gonna miss this little penny. So in vulnerability, I'm gonna trust you and here's my penny. You lose it, whatever, it's not gonna hurt me. And so saying like, oh, you handled that well, you still respect me and, and I, that was kind and trustworthy. Now I'm gonna give you my nickel, same response. Here's my dime, great. As I work up, I can move into the deeper parts to say, here's my $50 bill. And holy cow, I still feel safe. And not only is this, a, it's not a scary problem anymore, scary challenge, this vulnerability, but now I'm actually enjoying vulnerability. So now here's $75 and now here's a hundred and you're still great, you're still respectful and I feel even more safe and even more seen and cared for. Now here's 200 and now here's 400. And we begin handing over more and more of ourselves. And then we realize that vulnerability isn't scary, it's actually safe. Do you have that sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> it is. <laughs> uh-huh. It requires a whole jar of change. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Uh -huh. I don't know if I have that jar yet. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, okay. I feel like I definitely have been allowing myself to be more vulnerable in my friendships, at least. Mm -hmm. I've been allowing myself to be open and talk about struggles I've had with people versus just holding that in and not saying anything awesome. and just working on them. So that's, it's good hearing that that feeling won't be there forever. Yeah, for sure. It definitely won't. It definitely won't. I really do believe in the power of vulnerability because at first safety doesn't feel safe. And that's a really interesting uh, paradox to be in. The safety, it's actually feeling kind of scary. You're seeing me and you're asking me to trust you. And it's like, what the hell is this weird? Until we, we gently hand over, maybe it's five pennies until we're ready for a nickel. Whatever the process is, um, sharing more and more and more about ourselves, I think is the, is the way to go. I always tell my clients, make them earn your trust. Hand over the little pieces and make sure that they're trustworthy and they're earning it and then hand over a little bit more. And that could be really helpful. 
it it sounded helpful. Good. I think that, <laughs> yeah, I'll take that away. You know, and this could be with someone that you want to date. It could also just be someone in your house, just practicing vulnerability in a safe container, seeing how it goes, how you respond, how kind of learning the ropes, as they say, and then practicing it outside with someone totally brand new. Does that, I, does the idea of vulnerability make that experience in your chest grow again, get a little bit more scary, or does it help feel more peaceful? It kind of, it feels a little more peaceful hearing vulnerability from that take, but yeah. Good, good, yeah. So you did what you're supposed to do, good job. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> When I was in graduate school, I would spend hours in the library researching everything I could on the topics related to human sexuality, gender, and relationships. After soaking in all sorts of data, I still felt hopeless to know what I really was. Was I gay? I don't know. Maybe. Was I bisexual? Not quite sure. Was I straight? Oh, hell no. After crawling out from underneath all of that academic and nerdy sterile rationale, I would flop onto my therapist's couch. There I would swim in my own confusion until he stopped me one day. He said, Isaac, you're going to have to trust the place that knows. And by George, he was right. For me, the place that knows is a very still and peaceful place where I can find my desires, not as an active compulsion or swirling spiral that sucks me in, but rather the place that knows is where I go to understand with a deep peace and a strong confidence what I really want. As I began to trust my desires more and more, I began to understand myself and my body. What was important in the process was that I was slowly deconstructing what we call the looking glass self. The cool dude, Charles Horton Cooley, (laughs) see what I did there, termed the looking glass self to teach us that we don't define ourselves by what we think of ourselves, and we don't define ourselves by what other people think of us. Cooley highlighted that most of us define ourselves by what we think others think of us. This is why I am always sure to help clients identify the language of their own stories. I keep a clipboard right by my counseling chair in my office. On a piece of paper, I will draw out a timeline to track three different coinciding elements. The top line for emotions, the middle line for ages, and the bottom line for our thought process. I have my clients write important or profound experiences along the middle line. So let's say, for example, at five years old, I felt for the first time a sticker on my forehead that everyone could see but me. I thought that they thought I was damaged, so that goes on the bottom line, and about that I felt shame and the need to hide my personality, which goes on the top line. And as you continue to write out various types of experiences, you begin to put together the story of your gender identity and your sexual orientation, but this time in your own terms. You get to self-define while shattering that looking glass self. And as our guest put it, let's shatter that mirror. What I found in trusting the place that knows and shattering the definitions of the looking glass self 
was that I had developed an internal pillar of confidence in myself, in my desires, in my body, and in the ways I had come to learn about who I am in the world. The pillar of confidence is a major support to my self-esteem. And when I feel rocked by a slanderous term, a negative critique, or a silent rejection, I find myself returning not to the looking glass self, but to all the data I have collected for myself that makes the pillar so steady in self-determination. That pillar of confidence will help support you through all the challenges that might come your way. To today's guest, thank you for showing up in bravery. Your words and insights, your challenges and honesty have allowed us to unpack some topics that many, including myself, have found helpful. Continue to practice vulnerability because you're better at it than you think. You're a gem and I wish you the best as you fall in love with your own desires. Until next time. Queer Relationships is a podcast sponsored by I Am Clinic, a counseling practice devoted to the LGBTQ plus community with in-person and virtual counseling options available. I Am Clinic, create the love lives and relationships you crave. Find us online on Instagram at LGBTQ underscore therapy and Facebook at I Am Clinic. That's I-A-M Clinic.